Chapter 2 Let's start at the very beginning. As Maria would have said in The Sound of Music, if it had been written at that time, which it wasn't. The very beginning, as far as we are concerned, in this story, is somewhere about 1870, when my great-great-grandfather Thomas Gilbert found a job in Folkestone after retiring as a sergeant from the military. He was a Kentish man, having been born just east of the Medway River in a small village called Hartley near Gravesend. The only jobs going in the area round in his home village would have been agricultural ones, and even today, nearly 200 years later, it is still an area for fruit and horses. So it's not surprising that Thomas would have had to look much further afield when he retired from the military looking for a job that would value his experience as a sergeant in the army. He was single, with a good record, and no ties to his home or village, and at that time Victorian Britain was buzzing with economic expansion and the railways were spreading like wildfire. Well, he quickly found a well-paid job in Folkestone on the southeast coast and this meant moving into a part of Kent east of the Medway River, populated by what were termed men of Kent. They scorned the Kentish men. This attitude originated way back in the 10th century, when the men of Kent put up a bold fight against William the Conqueror, of all people. And apparently the Kentish men in the area east of the Medway River were an easy pushover for William, and hence a scorn. No doubt... Time had dulled much of the animosity, as Thomas found it easy to get a foreman's job in the docks at Folkestone. Interestingly enough, Thomas's move to Folkestone was maybe something akin to the instinct driving a homing pigeon. It's likely that he had no knowledge of his family family's origins, but they would almost certainly have started in Folkestone or somewhere near Folkestone back in the 16th century. His forebears were originally a Huguenot family from North France or Belgium. Gilbert, with the French pronunciation Gilbert, is a common name still there in that part of France. They were fleeing Catholic persecution and travelled over the Channel to England, most of them landing in or around Folkestone, that being the shortest crossing from where they would have spread elsewhere all over the country. So Thomas's return to Folkestone was significant, although as far as we know, he did not follow Huguenot Christian beliefs himself personally. The fact that he had held a responsible job in the army as a sergeant would have helped him a lot in getting the post as foreman, and about, that, and about the same time he not only found a job, but also a wife. She was a smart, buxom lass from Rye in Sussex, and like him, was attracted to Folkestone by the plentiful jobs available. We don't know exactly how they met, but in 1872, Thomas Gilbert and Suzanne Anne married in Elim Church near Folkestone. He was 35 and she was 27. Little did they know that in that same church, perhaps even attending their wedding, was a family whose granddaughter was to marry their own grandson about 50 years later. 
to come back to this extraordinary coincidence later. It was tough for both Thomas and Suzanne to begin with, as neither had family close to hand, but they were both of resilient stock. You had to be in the days when medical and social care was virtually non-existent in England. They eventually settled in number three on Lower Sandgate Road in Folkestone. The house was one of a line of terraced fishermen's homes squeezed up against the cliff very close to the harbour and abutting an old fire station. Sadly, there's no evidence of those houses now, all having been demolished shortly after the Second World War. Presently, in their place, there's a rather scruffy fish and chip shop. However, in the 1890s, it was an ideal home for the Gilbert family. A short walk from the docks, where Thomas and later George, their eldest son, worked, and close enough to the town for the younger boys to get to school easily. It was also just a stone's throw from the, the amusement parks and public bars a little further along the beach westwards along Lower Sandgate Road. As far as we know, all their three sons were born and brought up in this ho house on Sandgate Road. George Lyle, their firstborn, was born in 1875. Their second son, Frank, he only ever had just that one name, was born in 1881 and survived, unlike several of his siblings conceived before him. And then they had Philip, who was born just two years later. They had no more children, which was quite unusual at that time, the infant death toll being so high. Their next-door neighbour, in fact, had eight children out of fifteen, four boys and four girls, and she had just lost her husband before the last was even born. Life was relatively short-lived in those days, especially amongst infants. Approximately 23 babies per 1,000 born, compared to less than four babies born per 1,000 in 2020. So families tended to have a large number of children as a sort of insurance policy against early deaths. It seems, though, that Thomas and Suzanne Gilbert stopped at their three boys, which was probably more to do with their economic success than their fear of early death. Daily life revolved around work at the docks, and Thomas, as a foreman, would pull in a good daily wage with overtime in the summer months when the traffic over the channel increased. Eventually, when his eldest son George joined him as a young apprentice, age 14, they would have had a few pence to spare. The obvious place to spend this was just up the road at the public baths. This was Thomas's favourite haunt. He was usually home from work around 6pm and he and George would come in for their tea that means an evening meal for those of you who are not familiar with working-class Britain in the last centuries. Probably most of you. Then, the two of them, father and son, especially on a Wednesday and a Saturday, would gather up some clean clothes and a bar of Life Boys soap and stroll along to the public bars just a few yards up the road. A recent law in Parliament had forced every borough council to build and run bathhouses for the working classes, 
who would not otherwise have adequate facilities in their homes for a proper bath. Sir Thomas and his son would join the shorter queue for the special cubicles and paying two pence would be issued a towel and a ticket for one of the private cubicles which they would share together. Thomas took pride in this small luxury. After all, he was a foreman, not just an ordinary docker, and by paying two pence for the luxury which he shared with his son would have been just as much as paying one penny each for the general bath where the rest of the hoi polloi would have bathed. Besides, it was a good time for father and son bonding, and they would often spend a couple more pennies on the way home at the fun fair opposite. They tended not to mention the fun fair to Suzanne, as she would not have approved of the wastage of the few precious pennies, but she was hugely grateful that her husband did not waste money in the public bars or encourage his son to visit with him. So although she often guessed where they had been, she never complained. As anyway, it meant there was more hot water for the rest of the family who washed at home. Thomas was a good father and a loyal, hard-working husband. Folkestone Harbour had recently been expanded to accommodate the new railway line from London, so there was no shortage of work for willing hands. There was strong competition from Dover, just a few miles further round the coast, but Folkestone was definitely the favoured of the two as far as jobs were concerned. The new, large cross-channel vessels needed larger docks and deeper water, so again there was ample work constantly expanding the capacity of Folkestone port. The railway line had been extended right down to the dockyard pier so that passengers could board the train in London, reach Folkestone, where the carriage was rolled onto the ferry across the channel, then roll off at Boulogne to be attached to a French train and disembark in the centre of Paris. Such was the luxury of Victorian travel. Just as good as the present-day travel from London to Paris via the Channel Tunnel, only a lot slower. Hard workers could earn a good wage, and as the railways and docks were under a certain amount of government control, even contracted work was well paid. In fact, Folkestone was probably one of the most prosperous towns in the southeast. It commanded the popular route from England to France, as the Dover-Calais route still lacked a railway connection on the French side. Folkestone also had a growing population of well-to-do gentry, occupying the recently built Lees estate on the cliff overlooking the harbour area and one of, the one of the most prestigious places to live outside London. Many moved from the smog of London to the clean, fresh air of the seaside, and with the ease of travel now by rail, it was possible to keep business connections in London while keeping your family in the healthy air of the channel ports. In fact, by Edwardian times of the early 1900s, Folkestone was known as the most fashionable town in England. <laughs> so, the Gilberts were, Gilbert boys were born at a good time and in a good place. The home of Thomas and Suzanne was happy. Money would have been tight, but not scarce. There were at least three sources of income, possibly four. Thomas's younger sister, known as Aunt Fanny, lived with them 
and was a seamstress and would have drawn a steady income from that along with her sister-in-law, Suzanne, who was also a seamstress. George, their eldest son, left labouring jobs at the dock and was appointed out to a land surveyor by the time he was 16 and he also would have brought in a few shillings every week. So compared to many working-class families of the Victorian period, the Gilberts were relatively well off. This was an important factor in the choice of career for their second son, Frank, my grandfather. He was fortunate in not having to work in the docks at all. He had an artistic flair, and his mother had recognised this from an early age. She had encouraged him to draw and colour using whatever medium available in those early days of amateur artists. His favourite was charcoal, as it was cheap and plentiful, and the drawings could be fixed by using a small glass tube dipped in a bottle of clear lamp oil and blowing across the top to create a spray over the charcoal drawing. He had to be careful not to spray near a lighted candle. Some of those early charcoal drawings lasted through to the 1970s, as I remember seeing a folder of Grandpa Frank's early drawings when I was an art student myself at Canterbury College of Art. I don't know what has happened to that folder, but those sketches have lasted a good 70-80 years, so their method of fixing certainly worked. I have a suspicion that my mother, your great-grandmother, probably used them for lighting fires, as there were some nude sketches among them which uh, rather fascinated me as a teenager, but my mother would not have approved of. Fortunately, Frank's musical talent was also fostered by his mother. This was perhaps a little less volatile. His mother had an older sister, also living in Folkestone, who had married well and now lived at number one, the Lees, with her husband. She had a piano fort, that instrument of instruments of the Victorian era. We now know it simply as a piano. Frank and his mum, with, with their younger brother Philip in tow, would make regular visits up to number one, walking the winding path from the lower Sandgate Road to the Lees and to the very first house. It was at the junction with Bouveri Place. There, Frank was introduced to the fascinating skill of making his own music by just touching ivory and black keys. He had a natural musical ear, and so it was not long before he was able to pick out some popular songs. His aunt, and I've never learnt her name, also had one of the newly invented machines called a gramophone. So the two sisters, that's Frank's mother and his aunt, would sit at ease in the drawing room overlooking the sea, sipping tea, while their favourite music hall ditties were playing on the gramophone. Frank would sit at the pianoforte and quietly follow the tunes along, much to the amusement of his mother and aunt. She had no children, so her two nephews, Frank and Philip, were always welcome and enjoyed a relative amount of freedom in her house. And it was not long before Frank had added to his own 
plinkety-plonk accompaniment to the melodies to give them that natural swing so loved in that age. For the next few years, Frank was regularly coming in from school, then dashing out of number three Lower Sandgate Lane and up the lane the few hundred yards, now known as the Road of Remembrance, but then just a, a stony track, to his aunt's house to play the piano. A happy relationship developed between them, which lasted well into the next generation. I remember my father driving past number one, the Lees, sometime in the 1960s and pointing it out to me when I was a teenager as the place where his great aunt had lived. Sadly, this house was knocked down in the 1980s or thereabouts, and a huge block of rather ugly shops and flats now tower over the number one. All you can get there now is a greasy Big Mac and chips or an Afghani curry, a far cry from the genteel tea and cake his aunt provided 130 years ago. My father recalled how, when he was about five, he would be dressed up in his Sunday best for the occasional special visit to this very great old aunt. She reminded him of the pictures of Queen Victoria dressed in black from head to toe, very much the Victorian lady. He also remembers his father, Frank, telling him of how he used to visit the same aunt in the winter when he was about the same age, five or six, and when he was trying to learn the piano. But he was very conscious of not being dressed smartly. He, that's Frank, had been wrapped in layers of newspaper and, then, and th those were sewn into his clothes at the beginning of winter and only cut out of them in the spring. That was a normal Victorian habit for the working class. He was embarrassingly conscious of how his aunt would have coped with the rather stale smell that would have surrounded him after running up the steep slope from his home to number one. Apparently she never made any comment about it, but happily allowed him to play on her piano while she dra sat drinking her tea. She was probably far too old to have any accurate smell or even sight. In fact, we know that Frank's visits were always welcomed. She lived a rather lonely life, being somewhat out of place in the high society of the, of the Victorian business society her husband came from and so she eagerly awaited her little nephew's regular visits after school as a high point of her day. Frank's piano playing retained its jovial musical style right through his life. When I was about eight, and we, went, we were on furlough from India, and Grandpa Frank would have been in his late 70s, I remember being slightly scandalised by him breaking into a jaunty, tinkling-tong musical ditty while we waited for my rather stuffy aunts, that's his daughters, to choose a hymn at the sing-alongs on a Sunday night in Mill House. There was always a wink at us boys and a twinkle in his eye until he was called to order by the aunts. These same jaunty tunes would be quietly whistled through his teeth as we would watch him from a safe distance, because oil paint sprayed on your shirt was not tolerated even by the most patient of mums, as he produced the posters and banners asked of him for the many churches and assemblies around Kent on a huge trestle table set up in the barn, which in those days was just a big empty space.
One wonders what were the memories he was reliving as these tunes came to his mind. By the time he had had, by that time he had had a varied and fulfilled life, spanning the end of the Victorian age and two world wars and twelve grandchildren. Well, we'll see how he got there in the next chapter, but before we leave this chapter, we must just mention again that fascinating collision of our histories in the village of Elam, which we briefly mentioned at the beginning of this chapter. There seemed little reason why Frank's parents, that's Thomas Gilbert and Suzanne, should have got married in Elam Church way back in 1872, as we know of no other link they would have had with that village. Perhaps Thomas may have had lodgings in that parish when he first arrived to work in the docks, but it would have been a long walk in and out every day, so that's unlikely. It would seem more likely that his fiancée, Suzanne, had lodgings in the parish and attended the church on a Sunday, and so would naturally choose that church to be married in. Or maybe they just liked the church, and the vicar agreed to marry them. <laughs> Whatever the reason, it was fascinating for me to discover that both sides of our family are connected to this village of Elam. To be very honest, it was only now, in 2020, that I've discovered this link between the two families, and that was only after receiving an account of my grandfather Fred's early life, that's on my mother's side, from my cousin Uffi. The connection to Elam on my mother's side is much clearer than that of the Gil that of the Kilberts. Her forebears were prosperous farming families living in both Elam and the neighbouring village of Monks Horton, all deriving from the Preble and Knowlton families, who obviously intermarried many times in the course of their history, which stretched back to 1610 in the same village. These families were also regular attenders at Elam Church, and almost certainly some of that large combined family would have unknowingly attended Thomas and Suzanne Gilbert's wedding in the 1870s. If you visit this beautiful little village in the middle of the South Downs in Kent, you'll discover many prebles buried in the graves, in the, in the grave rounds surrounding the church. They're all your relatives in some way or other. Well, in a branch of the preble family that farmed in Monks Horton, was born in 1834, a daughter named Margaret Knowlton Preble, displaying for, displaying for any to see that she was proudly descended from both the Knowlton and Preble farming families. I imagine her to be rather a rebel, although we have no real knowledge of her early history. However, she was radical enough as a single young woman to break away from her farming background and travel to the great city of London where she would have found a very different crowd to the country bumpkin lads of Kent. The city young men of Victorian London were well-educated and sophisticated and from all sorts of business or professional families, what we would call in these days the middle class. Margaret, from her well-to-do land-owning class, would have easily mixed with such a crowd and eventually she met a fine young and upcoming chemist an East Londoner of several generations, running his own chemist business from his shop in Islington. How they met, we have no idea, but it could well have been through their local church or through mutual friends attending house parties of some kind or other. But in due course they were married in St Luke's, Camden, 
in April 1983. He was William Walter New, who is my great-grandfather. So you can work out from that what relation he is to you. Eventually, on December the 6th, 1866, their third child, Frederick William New, was born. And he was my grandfather. But you'll have to wait until chapter four to discover more of this amazing story. So, to end this chapter, it started with Thomas Gilbert, who married in Elam, and end it with Frederick New, who was born, most likely, in Elam. You would need to conclude, should we want to locate our native place in the UK? As many in India would say, we would have to name it as Elam. How strange.